Part 1, Chapter 7, Section 3 of Chance by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chance, Part 1, Chapter 7, Section 3. I had seen Fine come striding out of the hotel door. The intelligent girl, without staying to ask questions, walked away from me quietly down one street, while I hurried on to meet Fine coming up the other at his efficient pedestrian gait. My object was to stop him getting as far as the corner. He must have been thinking too hard to be aware of his surroundings. I put myself in his way, and he nearly walked into me. "'Hello,' I said. His surprise was extreme. "'You here? You don't mean to say you've been waiting for me?' I said negligently that I had been detained by unexpected business in the neighbourhood and thus happened to catch sight of him coming out. He stared at me with solemn distraction, obviously thinking of something else. I suggested that he had better take the next Cityward tramcar. He was inattentive, and I perceived that he was profoundly perturbed. As Mr. Barrel, she had moved out of sight, could not possibly approach the hotel door as long as we remained where we were, I proposed that we should wait for the car on the other side of the street. He obeyed, rather, the slight touch on his arm than my words, and while we were crossing the wide roadway in the midst of the lumbering wheeled traffic, he exclaimed in his deep tone, "'I don't know which of these two is more mad than the other.' "'Really?' I said, pulling him forward from under the nose of two enormous sleepy-headed cart-horses. He skipped wildly out of the way and up on the curbstone with a purely instinctive precision. His mind had nothing to do with his movements. In the middle of his leap, and while in the act of sailing gravely through the air, he continued to relieve his outraged feelings. "'You would never believe. They are mad!' I took care to place myself in such a position that, to face me, he had to turn his back on the hotel across the road. I believe he was glad I was there to talk to but I thought there was some misapprehension in the first statement he shot out at me without loss of time that Captain Anthony had been glad to see him. It was difficult to believe that directly he opened the door, his wife's sailor brother had positively shouted, Oh, it's you, the very man I wanted to see. I found him sitting there, went on fine impressively in his effortless, grave chest voice, drafting his will. This was unexpected, but I preserved a non-committal attitude, knowing full well that our actions in themselves are neither mad nor sane. But I did not see what there was to be excited about, and Fine was distinctly excited. I understood it better when I learned that the captain of the Ferndale wanted little Fine to be one of the trustees. He was leaving everything to his wife. Naturally, a request which involved him into sanctioning, in a way, a proceeding which he had been sent by his wife to oppose, must have appeared sufficiently mad to fine. "'Me! Me! Of all people in the world!' he repeated portentously. But I could see that he was frightened. Such want of tact. "'He knew I came from his sister. You don't put a man into such an awkward position,' complained Fine. It made me speak much more strongly against all this very painful business than I would have had the heart to do otherwise. I pointed out to him concisely, and keeping my eyes on the door of the hotel, that he and his wife were the only bond with the land Captain Anthony had. Who else could he have asked? I explained to him that he was breaking this bond, declared Fine solemnly, breaking it once and for all. And for what? For what? He glared at me. I could perhaps have given him an inkling of what, but I said nothing. He started again. My wife assures me that the girl does not love him a bit. She goes by that letter she received from her. 
There is a passage in it where she practically admits that she was quite unscrupulous in accepting this offer of marriage, but says to my wife that she supposes she, my wife, will not blame her, as it was in self-defence. My wife has her own ideas, but this is an outrageous misapprehension of her views. Outrageous! The good little man paused, and then added weightily, I didn't tell that to my brother-in-law. I mean, my wife's views. No, I said. What would have been the good? It's positive infatuation, agreed Little Fine, in the tone as though he had made an awful discovery. I've never seen anything so hopeless and inexplicable in my life. I, I felt quite frightened and sorry, he added, while I looked at him curiously, asking myself whether this excellent civil servant and notable pedestrian had felt the breath of a great and fatal love spell passing him by in the room of that East End hotel. He did look for a moment as though he had seen a ghost, another world thing. But that look vanished instantaneously, and he nodded at me with mere exasperation at something quite of this world, whatever it was. "'It's a bad business. My brother-in-law knows nothing of women,' he cried with an air of profound, experienced wisdom. What he imagined he knew of women himself, I can't tell. I did not know anything of the opportunities he might have had— but this is a subject which, if approached with undue solemnity, is apt to elude one's grasp entirely. No doubt Fine knew something of a woman who was Captain Anthony's sister, but that, admittedly, had been a very solemn study. I smiled at him gently, and, as if encouraged or provoked, he completed his thought rather explosively. And that girl understands nothing! It's sheer lunacy! I don't know, I said, whether the circumstances of isolation at sea would be any alleviation to the danger, but it's certain that they shall have the opportunity to learn everything about each other in a lonely tete-a-tete. But dash it all, he cried in hollow accents, which at the same time had the tone of bitter irony. I had never before heard a sound so quaintly ugly and almost horrible. You forget Mr. Smith. What Mr. Smith? I asked innocently. Fine made an extraordinary simiesque grimace. I believe it was quite involuntary, but you know that a grave, much-lined, shaven countenance, when distorted in an unusual way, is extremely ape-like. It was a surprising sight, and rendered me not only speechless, but stopped the progress of my thought completely. I must have presented a remarkably imbecile appearance. "'My brother-in-law considered it amusing to chaff me about us introducing the girl as Miss Smith,' said Fine, going surly in a moment. "'He said that perhaps if he had heard her real name from the first it might have restrained him. "'As it was, he made the discovery too late. "'Asked me to tell Zoe this together with a lot more nonsense.' "'Fine gave me the impression of having escaped from a man inspired by a grimly playful ebullition of high spirits. "'It must have been most distasteful to him.' and his solemnity got damaged somehow in the process, I perceived. There were holes in it through which I could see a new, an unknown fine. You wouldn't believe it, he went on, but she looks upon her father exclusively as a victim. I don't know, he burst out suddenly through an enormous rent in his solemnity, if she thinks him absolutely a saint, but she certainly imagines him to be a martyr. It is one of the advantages of that magnificent invention, the prison, that you may forget people which are put there as though they were dead. One needn't worry about them. Nothing can happen to them that you can help. They can do nothing which might possibly matter to anybody. They come out of it, though, but that seems hardly an advantage to themselves or anyone else. I had completely forgotten the financier de Barrel. The girl, for me, was an orphan, 
but now I perceived suddenly the force of Fine's qualifying statement to a certain extent. It would have been infinitely more kind all round for the law to have shot, beheaded, strangled or otherwise destroyed this absurd de Barrel, who was a danger to a moral world inhabited by a credulous multitude not fit to take care of itself. But I observed to find that, however insane was the view she held, one could not declare the girl mad on that account. So she thinks of her father, does she? I suppose she would appear to us saner if she thought only of herself. I am positive, said Fine earnestly, that she went and made desperate eyes at Anthony. Oh, come, I interrupted. You haven't seen her make eyes. You don't know the colour of her eyes. Very well, it doesn't matter. But it could hardly have come to that if she hadn't... That's all one, though. I tell you she has led him on, or accepted him, if you like, simply because she was thinking of her father. She doesn't care a bit about Anthony, I believe. She cares for no one, never cared for anyone. Ask Zoe. For myself, I don't blame her, added Fine, giving me another view of unsuspected things through the rags and tatters of his damaged solemnity. No, by heavens, I don't blame her, the poor devil. I agreed with him silently. I suppose affections are, in a sense, to be learned. If there exists a native spark of love in all of us, it must be fanned while we are young. Hers, if she ever had it, had been drenched in as ugly a lot of corrosive liquid as could be imagined. But I was surprised at Fine obscurely feeling this. She loves no one except that preposterous advertising shark, he pursued venomously, but in a more deliberate manner. And Anthony knows it. Does he? I said doubtfully. She's quite capable of having told him herself, affirmed Fine with amazing insight. But whether or no, I've told him. You did? From Mrs. Fine, of course. Fine only blinked owlishly at this piece of my insight. And how did Captain Anthony receive this interesting information? I asked further. Most improperly, said Fine, who really was in a state in which he didn't mind what he blurted out. He isn't himself. He begged me to tell his sister that he offered no remark on her conduct. Very improper and inconsequent. He said, I was tired of this wrangling. I told him I made allowances for the state of excitement he was in. You know, fine, I said. A man in jail seems to me such an incredible, cruel, nightmarish sort of thing that I can hardly believe in his existence. Certainly not in relation to any other existences. But dash it all, cried Fine. He isn't shut up for life. They're going to let him out. He's coming out. That's the whole trouble. What is he coming out to, I want to know? It seems a more cruel business than the shutting him up was. That has been the worry for weeks. Do you see now? I saw all sorts of things. Immediately before me, I saw the excitement of little Fine, mere food for wonder. Further off, in a sort of gloom and beyond the light of day and the movement of the street, I saw the figure of a man, stiff like a ramrod, moving with small steps, a slight girlish figure by his side. And the gloom was like the gloom of villainous slums, of misery, of wretchedness, of a starved and degraded existence. It was a relief that I could see only their shabby, hopeless backs, he was an awful ghost. But indeed, to call him a ghost was only a refinement of polite speech and a manner of concealing one's terror of such things. Prisons are wonderful contrivances. Shut, open. Very neat. Shut, open. And out comes some sort of corpse to wander awfully in a world in which it has no possible connections and carrying with it the appalling tainted atmosphere of its silent abode. Marvellous arrangement. 
It works automatically, and when you look at it, the perfection makes you sick, which, for a mere mechanism, is no mean triumph. Sick and scared. It had nearly scared that poor girl to her death. Fancy having to take such a thing by the hand. Now I understood the remorseful strain I had detected in her speeches. By Jove, I said, they're about to let him out. I never thought of that. Fine was contemptuous either of me or of things at large. You didn't suppose he was to be kept in jail for life? At that moment I caught sight of Flora de Barrel at the junction of the two streets. Then some vehicles following each other in quick succession hid from my sight the black slight figure with just a touch of colour in her hat. She was walking slowly, and it might have been caution or reluctance. While listening to Fine, I stared hard past his shoulder, trying to catch sight of her again. He was going on with positive heat, the rags of his solemnity dropping off him at every second sentence. That was just it. His wife and he had been perfectly aware of it. Of course, the girl never talked of her father with Mrs. Fine. I suppose with her theory of innocence she found it difficult, but she must have been thinking of it day and night, what to do with him, where to go, how to keep body and soul together. He had never made any friends, the only relations were the atrocious East End cousins. We know what they were, nothing but wretchedness, whichever way she turned in an unjust and prejudiced world. And to look at him helplessly she felt would be too much for her. I won't say I was thinking these thoughts. It was not necessary. This complete knowledge was in my head while I stared hard across the wide road, so hard that I failed to hear Little Fine till he raised his deep voice indignantly. I don't blame the girl, he was saying. He's infatuated with her. Anybody can see that. Why she should have got such a hold on him, I can't understand. She said yes to him only for the sake of that fatuous, swindling father of hers. It's perfectly plain if one thinks it over a moment. One needn't even think of it. We have it under her own hand. In that letter to my wife, she says she has acted unscrupulously. She has owned up, then, for what else can it mean, I should like to know. And so they are to be married before that old idiot comes out. He will be surprised, commented Fine suddenly in a strangely malignant tone. He should be met at the jail door by a Mrs. Anthony, a Mrs. Captain Anthony. Very pleasant for Zoe. And for all I know, my brother-in-law means to turn up dutifully too, a little family event. It's extremely pleasant to think of, delightful, a charming family party. We three against the world and all that sort of thing. And what for? For a girl that doesn't care tuppence for him. The demon of bitterness had entered into little fine. He amazed me, as though he had changed his skin from white to black. It was quite as wonderful, and he kept it up too. Luckily, there are some advantages in the the profession of a sailor. As long as they defy the world away at sea somewhere, 18,000 miles from here, I don't mind so much. I wonder what that interesting old party will say. He will have another surprise. They mean to drag him along with them on board the ship straight away. Rescue work. Just think of Roderick Anthony, the son of a gentleman, after all. He gave me a little shock. I thought he was going to say, the son of the poet, as usual, but his mind was not running on such vanities now. His unspoken thought must have gone on, and uncle of my girls. I suspected he had been roughly handled by Captain Anthony up there, and the resentment gave a tremendous fillip to the slow play of his wits. Those men of sober fancy, when anything rouses their imaginative faculty, are very thorough. Just think, he cried, the three of them crowded into a four-wheeler, and Anthony sitting deferentially opposite that astonished old jailbird. 
the good little man laughed. An improper sound it was to come from his manly chest, and what made it worse was the thought that for the least thing, by a mere hair's breadth, he might have taken this affair sentimentally. But clearly Anthony was no diplomatist. His brother-in-law must have appeared to him, to use the language of shore people, a perfect philistine, with a heart like a flint. What Fine precisely meant by wrangling, I don't know, but I had no doubt that these two had wrangled to a profoundly disturbing extent. How much the other was affected, I could not even imagine, but the man before me was quite amazingly upset. "'In a four-wheeler! Take him on board!' I muttered, startled by the change in Fine. "'That's the plan. Nothing less!' If I am to believe what I have been told, his feet will scarcely touch the ground between the prison gates and the deck of that ship. The transformed fine spoke in a forcibly lowered tone which I heard without difficulty. The rumbling, composite noises of the street were hushed for a moment, during one of these sudden breaks in the traffic, as if the stream of commerce had dried up at its source. Having an unobstructed view past fine's shoulder, I was astonished to see that the girl was still there. I thought she had gone up long before, but there was her black slender figure, her white face under the roses of her hat. She stood on the edge of the pavement as people stand on the bank of a stream, very still, as if waiting, or as if unconscious of where she was. The three dismal, sodden loafers, I could see them too, they hadn't budged an inch, seemed to me to be watching her, which was horrible. Meantime, Fine was telling me rather remarkable things, for him. He declared first it was a mercy, in a sense. Then he asked me if it were not real madness to saddle one's existence with such a perpetual reminder. The daily existence, the isolated, sea-bound existence. To bring such an additional strain into the solitude already trying enough for two people was the craziest thing. Undesirable relations were bad enough on shore. One could cut them, or at least forget their existence now and then. He himself was preparing to forget his brother-in-law's existence as much as possible. That was the general sense of his remarks, not his exact words. I thought that his wife's brother's existence had never been very embarrassing to him, but that now, of course, he would have to abstain from his allusions to the son of the poet, you know. I said, yes, yes, in the pauses, because I did not want him to turn round, and all the time I was watching the girl intently. I thought I knew now what she meant with her... He was most generous. Yes, generosity of character may carry a man through any situation. But why didn't she go then to a generous man? Why stand there as if clinging to this solid earth, which she surely hated as one must hate the place where one has been tormented, hopeless, unhappy? Suddenly she stirred. Was she going to cross over? No. She turned and began to walk slowly close to the curbstone, reminding me of the time when I discovered her walking near the edge of a ninety-foot sheer drop. It was the same impression, the same carriage, straight, slim, with rigid head, and the two hands hanging lightly clasped in front, only now a small sunshade was dangling from them. I saw something fateful in that deliberate pacing towards the inconspicuous door with the words Hotel Entrance on the glass panels. She was abreast of it now, and I thought that she would stop again. But no, she swerved rigidly. At the moment there was no one near her. She had that bit of pavement to herself, with inanimate slowness, as if moved by something outside herself. A confounded convict, Fine burst out. With the sound of that word offending my ears, I saw the girl extend her arms, push the door open a little way, and glide in. I saw plainly that movement, the hand put out in advance with the gesture of a sleepwalker.
She had vanished. Her black figure had melted in the darkness of the open door. For some time Fine said nothing, and I thought of the girl going upstairs, appearing before the man. Were they looking at each other in silence, and feeling they were alone in the world, as lovers should be at the moment of meeting? But that fine forgetfulness was surely impossible to Anthony the seaman, directly after the wrangling interview with Fine, the emissary of an order of things which stops at the edge of the sea. How much he was disturbed I couldn't tell, because I did not know what that impetuous lover had had to listen to. "'Going to take the old fellow to sea with them,' I said. "'Well, I really don't see what else they could have done with him. "'You told your brother-in-law what you thought of it. "'I wonder how he took it.' "'Very improperly,' repeated Fine. "'His manner was offensive, derisive, from the first. "'I don't mean he was actually rude in words. "'Hang it all, I'm not a contemptible ass, "'but he was exulting at having got hold of a miserable girl. "'It is pretty certain that she will be much less poor and miserable,' I murmured. It looked as if the exaltation of Captain Anthony had got on Fine's nerves. I told the fellow very plainly that he was abominably selfish in this, he affirmed unexpectedly. You did? Selfish? I said, rather taken aback. But what if the girl thought that, on the contrary, he was most generous? What do you know about it? growled Fine. The rents and slashes of his solemnity were closing up gradually, but it was going to be a surly solemnity. Generosity. I'm inclined to give it another name. No, not folly, he shot out at me as though I had meant to interrupt him. Still another, something worse. I need not tell you what it is, he added with grim meaning. Certainly, you needn't, unless you like, I said blankly. Little Fine had never interested me so much since the beginning of the de Barrel-Anthony affair when I first perceived possibilities in him. The possibilities of dull men are exciting, because when they happen they suggest legendary cases of possession, not exactly by the devil, but anyhow by a strange spirit. I told him it was a shame, said Fine, even if the girl did make eyes at him, but I think, with you, that she did not. Yes, a shame to take advantage of a girl's, a distressed girl that does not love him in the least. You think it's so bad as that, I said, because you know I don't. "'What can you think about it?' he retorted on me with a solemn stare. "'I go by a letter to my wife.' "'Ah, that famous letter. "'But you haven't actually read it,' I said. "'No, but my wife told me. "'Of course it was a most improper sort of letter to write, "'considering the circumstances. "'It pained Mrs. Fine to discover how thoroughly she had been misunderstood. "'But what is written is not all. "'It's what my wife could read between the lines. "'She says that the girl is really terrified at heart.' She had not much in life to give her any very special courage for it, or any great confidence in mankind, that's very true. But this seems an exaggeration. I should like to know what reasons you have to say that, asked Fine, with offended solemnity. I really don't see any. But I had sufficient authority to tell my brother-in-law that if he thought he was going to do something chivalrous and fine, he was mistaken. I can see very well that he will do everything she asks him to do, but all the same it is rather a pitiless transaction. For a moment I felt it might be so. Fine caught sight of an approaching tramcar and stepped out on the road to meet it. Have you a more compassionate scheme ready? I called after him. He made no answer, clambered onto the rear platform and only then looked back. We exchanged a perfunctory wave of the hand. We also looked at each other, he rather angrily, I fancy, and I with wonder. I may also mention that it was for the last time. From that day I never set eyes on the Fines. 
as usual, the unexpected happened to me. It had nothing to do with Flora de Barrel. The fact is that I went away. My call was not like her call. Mine was not urged on me with passionate vehemence or tender gentleness made all the finer and more compelling by the allurements of generosity, which is a virtue as mysterious as any other but having a glamour of its own. No, it was just a prosaic offer of employment on rather good terms, which, with a sudden sense of having wasted my time on shore long enough, I accepted without misgivings. And once started out of my indolence, I went, as my habit was, very, very far away, and for a long, long time, which is another proof of my indolence. How far Flora went, I can't say, but I will tell you my idea. My idea is that she went as far as she was able, as far as she could bear it, as far as she had to. End of Part 1, Chapter 7, Section 3